Hello and welcome to Reactives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week our podcast is focusing on the Ukrainian and Russian escalation, on the diplomatic efforts to maintain the peace in the region and what does Russia want from Ukraine and the West. We are also talking about the presidential race in Italy, why does it matter, who are the most credible names, how does the voting system work and how can the election of the president influence Italian politics. Now, the situation on the Ukrainian borders with Russia has escalated the past few months with diplomats trying to uphold a ceasefire. To understand a bit better what is happening in Ukraine, I am joined by Euractiv's Alexandra Przozowski, who has traveled to Kiev this week and is currently in the Donbass. Where are you at the moment, Alex? How do you perceive the mood in Ukraine? And does Kiev expect there will be an escalation soon? Hi, Evie. Yes, uh, I'm currently in Severodonetsk. It's a city in the Luhansk Oblast of Ukraine, in the Donbass, in the east, um, where we've been meeting with officials and stakeholders to to speak about the current um, security situation. One fact is that um, Moscow's military buildup on Ukraine's borders is continuing and also has created fears of a much wider incursion into Ukraine maybe beyond the industrial eastern regions, um, which are currently controlled by Russian-backed uh, separatists. But in Kiev, where I was earlier this week, um, obviously this, has, this is taken under consideration, but I think it's um, also important to stress that people are calm and uh, you know, shops and cafes were busy and there were no visible signs of, of, of panic or, or anything like that. Despite the decision by the US and UK embassies this week uh, to evacuate um, non-essential staff um, from Ukraine, the EU so far has not uh, had plans to join into these embassy withdrawals. But in general, I think when we speak about the Ukrainian population, which we have talked to some citizens um And all of them pointed towards the fact that, you know, the war has been going on in the country for the past eight years. So um, some did confirm they have been thinking about emergency plans in the event of some some invasion or incursion. But um, that was only a minority of them. So keep calm and carry on. Yes, I'd say so. But I mean, Ukrainian officials in the past days have also sought to kind of reassure their citizens that any kind of military action is not that imminent. I mean, Ukraine's President Zelensky had a few TV appearances this week where he precisely said that. And um, I think the general expectation is that as long as Putin is in talks with the West over over the security proposals and, and in general is in talks with the West, it's very unlikely for him that he might um, proceed with a military scenario on Ukraine. But also the deputy prime minister um, of Ukraine, which we spoke to earlier this week, said it's, it's on the other hand, also very unlikely that he simply does an order to withdraw the troops from the Ukrainian border because it's his best pressure point on Kiev at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what does Russia want? Well, first of all, I mean, if we're thinking about Ukraine, it's it's obviously for the country not to join the EU or NATO, but... Um, I mean, we've seen and remember the the proposals made by Russia 
um, in December the draft security pacts that they have sent to NATO and, and the West and expected a, a response to them. So those included demands for NATO to pull back troops from Eastern Europe to shut NATO's door to future members, including Ukraine, Georgia and the Nordic countries, um, while also kind of invoking this idea of Russian spheres of influence. So this Wednesday, we, we saw that there was a response from both US and NATO, though, um, I mean, those responses are not public, but from what, what we could hear from US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and, and NATO Secretary General in Stoltenberg yesterday is that it's very clear that they don't think about any concessions, um, just offer more diplomacy um, over arms control, confidence building measures, and so on, so on. So the question is now, uh, what Moscow's response will be to that. And other diplomatic efforts are continuing too. Is there any chance to settle the conflict? Indeed, I mean, some some in Europe, I think, currently place quite some hope on the four-way Normandy format, which which obviously brings together Ukraine, Russian, um, German and French officials. Um, and it's meant to help end the conflict between um, pro-Russian separatists uh, and Ukraine in, in, in the east of the country. Those talks have um, stalled since November, but this week there was a meeting of political advisors, the first time um, all four parties met since since 2019, basically. Um, and after the talks that, I mean, they lasted eight and a half hours, so, so quite some time, they have reaffirmed the commitment to uphold a ceasefire um, that was agreed also in the so-called Minsk Accords. So there is a realistic chance uh, that we might see some progress soon. Well, it's a glimpse of hope, but it might be misleading because uh, there is not much willingness in Kiev to talk about more substantial things going beyond the ceasefire as far as um, we could hear this week, um, especially be while they have a gun at their head, namely the Russian troops at their borders. But um, I think the reading of many observers and experts is that Kiev has done as much as is reasonable to fill the agreement, to fulfill the agreement. Given that Russia is still occupying its territory, on the other hand, um, Russia, according to those analysis, has done not much. So the Minsk agreements face the difficulty that um, obviously there is to try to reconcile Ukraine's demand for full sovereignty of its territory. And on the other side, Russia's insistence that the Russian speaking people of eastern Ukraine should receive autonomy. Um, and a major blockage has been that Moscow's insistence um, that it's not a party to the conflict um, and therefore not bound by its terms. So Kiev and and its supporters have called the agreements one-sided um, as it deals uh, with the Ukrainian government and separatists in the East, but not with Russia itself. So what I've been hearing from Ukrainian officials here in the Donbass is that there are there's no willingness to proceed uh, with those as long as it happens on the Russian interpretation of those accords. Um, and what is needed, I think, is, is better mediation. And the people in eastern Ukraine, uh, what do they think? And what happens if Russia invades Ukraine nevertheless? Most people we've spoken to here on the ground um, obviously hope for a settlement uh, of the conflict as soon as possible. But there are also no illusions uh, about that. Just, just like in Kiev, there is no panic. And um, I think Ukrainian officials have pointed out that they believe Ukraine's armed forces are not the same as they were in 2014, but better prepared. So um, they also speak about the willingness of their citizens to defend their country, and which 
has been kind of confirmed by by what we have been hearing from from people here um in around Donetsk around Luhansk uh, when we had the chance to speak to them over the past days um they do welcome the support Ukraine is getting from the west be it diplomatic or or arms supplies and so on and so on but um again there are no illusions that if, if really the worst comes to the worst they will have to fight on their own and remaining on the ground i also spoke with krasnikov from urad bulgaria who can shed some light on why putin wants an escalation with the west krasn you're also on the ground in uh, severodonetsk to be more precise so how does the situation on the borders look from your side it's it's very strange because everything uh, everybody here is uh so calm and everybody knows that uh, everything everything is possible uh, right now and they're ready for war um, from uh, ukrainian sources the ukrainian army is better much better prepared now they have around uh, 300,000 soldiers uh, according to sources from the ukrainian security services There are more than uh, uh, 120,000 Russian soldiers around the Ukrainian border from uh, south uh, at Crimea, uh, from the east uh, near to Donetsk and Lugansk, and from the north near to Kharkov. Uh, so they're there, they're on the pretext that military exercises are being held. Uh, Everybody is thinking that Russia is in position to escalate the conflict at any moment. And since you're mentioning the escalation of the situation, why is Putin so keen on escalating the relations with the West? That's the one million dollar question. Everybody thinks that the whole escalation right now, it's because Putin is trying to stop uh, Ukraine from NATO and EU and bring back the Ukrainians in uh, his sphere of influence. Both Ukrainians and the Western diplomats uh, say uh, that no one knows what is going on in the President Putin's head at the moment. So the common opinion is that uh, all options are possible and uh, Ukrainians are hoping not to have, uh, to, to have a war uh, but are uh, not preparing for one. Well, thank you, Alex and Krasen, for this valuable information from the ground. And you're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our digital brief podcast and agri-food brief podcast. And now moving to Italy, where everyone is waiting for the presidential race to finish and to meet the new Italian president. To hear more on this story, I spoke with Euractiv's Italians. More specifically, I spoke with our reporter Eleonora Vasquez, our agri-food and health editor Gerardo Fortuna, and our digital editor Luca Bertuzzi. Well, welcome everyone, and thank you for being here. And Luca, why does the Italian presidency race matter? So the Italian president is not uh, commonly known abroad. Uh, it's a bit uh, like the role of the German president. Uh, it's most of the time it it is a symbolic role. It uh, it's the head of the army. It's the head of the constitutional court. 
But the President of the Republic has a very important role in times of political crisis, which in Italy should not be underestimated. So essentially, when there is a political crisis and the government resigns, it is up to the President of the Republic to decide to whom to give the mandate to form a new government. So this means that internationally, Uh, the president of uh, the Italian Republic has a very delicate role uh, of guarantor vis-à-vis Italy's main international partners uh, to make sure that there is stability and that essentially it's a figure that provides the, the ultimate decision on the Italian political system. That's why it's really important. Will the government collapse, Gerardo? Well, it depends on the outcomes of the election. Of course, there are um, whatever the scenario will uh, emerge after this uh, election, uh, this could have repercussions for sure on the ruling coalition, uh, because uh, again, it's it's um it's a game between the center left and the center wing uh, coalitions. Part of the center right coalition is in the government, Lega and uh, and Forza Italia, while Fratelli d'Italia is uh, sitting at the opposition at the moment. And, uh, of course, if Draghi would uh, would be moved to uh, the Quirinal Palace, uh, this will change completely. Of course, they, we would need an, an, another government. So uh, that, that would be... Uh, of course, a, a big uh, impact on the on the current government. But even if um, if, for instance, a center left candidate uh, would be elected, this could be perceived as a as a, um, a defeat for uh, for the center right, and this could uh, undermine uh, the the current government. So yeah, th- there will be repercussions for sure on the government. And Eleonora, what happens to Draghi? Uh, we have to see. Um, if I can put a bit on the context, uh, the situation, Draghi is a figure that uh, uh, it is allowing basically this uh, very, very huge coalition of different parties from the left uh, to the right in Italy to keep going, to have a balance. So everybody uh, thought about uh, a figure like Draghi to be the president of the Republic because uh, he is able to keep this balance uh, because the president of the Republic should be an institutional uh, partisan uh, figure that can keep this. Uh, At the moment, it seems that there isn't this figure uh, except from from Draghi uh, for the president of the Republic. So this is why there is this uh, uh, debate of uh, whether Draghi should be the next president of the Republic, but uh, if he... Uh, left the the office as a prime minister would be a big damage uh, for uh, uh, the government because at the moment it seems that nobody can replace him as a um, as a uh, prime minister. So we risk to go to election in a very uh, difficult crisis. Uh, Uh, in, in a very difficult moment, uh, both in terms of pandemic and in foreign affairs, for instance. Maybe something to add to that. Uh, What a lot of MPs are trying to avoid are precisely elections, because uh, not even two years ago, there was a referendum that uh, basically made that 
one third of the MPs will be cut, meaning a lot of MPs will lose their seat. And that's particularly the case for the five-star movement. So there are a lot of MPs that won't vote for Draghi, even if there is an agreement because the, the vote is secret. Uh, and the fact that there is a lot of noises around uh, Draghi becoming the new president, this has been more of a media spin than him actually having the numbers. And in the last hours, he has been trying to meet with uh, leaders of all the main parties. But so far, the, the reactions were really cold. So I don't think he's going anywhere, to be honest. And the voting procedure itself sounds quite particular. So how does it work, Gerardo? Well, the vote is, um, of course, there are some constitutional guarantees, uh, which are basically um, the first third voting sessions require a very high majority, the two thirds of the elective uh, assembly, which is made of um, uh, not only MPs and uh, senators, but also uh, local uh, regional administrators uh, but after the third uh, voting session uh, basically the, the majority required uh, lower to I think um, 505 votes so basically the, the simple majority uh, and this is uh, when the parties traditionally decided to play their best cards. Uh, so that's why, for instance, uh, since there's a voting session every day because of COVID uh, restrictions, um, that's why the game will uh, the, the game will will come live on Thursday when there then then there's the the, the first voting session, so the one with the lowered uh, majority. And how many voting sessions can there be? There's no limit. There's no limit. The record so far is uh, in 1971 uh, for uh, Giovanni Leone, uh, who got elected after 23 voting sessions. We're talking about a really timely process here. So yeah. do we have an estimation of when we will know the results? It depends on uh, on when the, uh, for instance, technically the center-right coalition uh, has the initiative. Uh, they already expressed their uh, initial picks. Of course, these initial picks are basically burnt. They're not really, uh, they're not the real pick yet. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the uh, peculiarity of this race. Uh, that uh, basically the first names are the one that uh, you want to waste. Um, but it depends on um, the main strategy. Like for instance, I assume that the center right uh, has. Uh, some candidates that they, they could put forward at the right time to win uh, the game. I, I often use the analogy with the, with, the, with the chess game, but yeah, it's basically the, the, the real checkmate uh, that the center-right could, uh, uh, could uh, deliver could be with uh, Casellati, which is the current uh, uh, Senate speaker, but there are also other figures like... Uh, Antonio Tajani, the former parliament, uh, president of the European Parliament, uh, Frattini, a, a, for, a former foreign minister. So these are the names. And it depends on when these names will be um, put on the table and how the center-left will reply if they agreed on those names. Uh, because, for instance, even the center-left has their own candidates. 
So um, I assume that it's not gonna last forever for sure, but also considering the next week in Italy there's a big event uh, such as uh, Sanremo Festival. I don't I don't think they they want to they want the presidential election overlap with uh, with such a big uh, with such a big event uh, for the public opinion. And Eleonora, Gerardo was mentioning some names already. So uh, which are the most credible candidates that could win the race? Well, it's very, very hard to say because uh, uh, we are uh, now, we are, uh, while we are uh, recording uh, on Wednesday, uh, there are the um, discussions uh, between the centre-left and the centre-right. So the thing is, Italian politics, it real, it's really unpredictable. So uh, it can be that now, for example, as name uh, said by Gerardo, like Casellati or Frattini uh, can be the, the candidates, but it can be that uh, uh, suddenly things uh, can change. So it is uh, very, very hard to to have a, pre a prediction on this. Um, but I, I, I assure you that, uh, as Gerardo said, tomorrow we can see uh, how the game uh, uh, will be done. How the how is the the general strategy as we will enter in the fourth voting session? Usually, the actual name is revealed just few hours before. Um, and this is to avoid what Gerardo was saying, to avoid to get it burned, let's say. And uh, I think that Thursday or maybe Friday will be the decisive days when we will know the real candidate. And finally, Luca, how is the EU witnessing the presidential race? Is that something that interests them or are they a bit more distant about it? Well, of course, when you have these sort of uh, delicate passages in, in the internal uh, political working of a country, you never have, you know, official endorsements because they, there is too backlash. Uh, we have seen some endorsement from the international press uh, for Mario Draghi, the FT, the New York Times, Uh, but of course, uh, behind this, uh, there, there is a lot of attention from, from the main uh, European capitals on what is happening. And the fact that the president has international credibility is a requirement for this position. And it is uh, needed for Washington, Paris, Berlin, which are basically the main allies of Italy, that the person they have uh, in front is a confirmed Atlanticist, is responsible on economical matters, and understand the positioning of Italy in NATO and in the European Union. If I may, one thing on what uh, Luca yes. said, because he touched a very important topic, the international uh, recognition of the uh, Italian president. Uh, Notoriously, Italy is um, is a country with uh, several uh, crises of government and uh, a lot of changes uh, changes in the in the governments. Uh, but at the same time, the figure of the president uh, is uh, a reference for for the embassies, but also for uh, other uh, governments. Uh, because it's it's there for seven years uh, because it's mandate it's solid and uh, whatever could happen in Italy 
uh, there will be the president as a reference for uh, the uh, other embassies and other governments. So uh, it's also um, the, the institutional figure that gives stability in a political system that otherwise would be, uh, I wouldn't say messy, but um, problematic, let's say this. If I can add something on this, that, uh, uh, I mean, it is a, a figure of, uh, uh, is a symbol, okay, of uh, our nation, of uh, the unity of uh, Italy, but at the same time, it has potentially uh, immense power, I believe, because uh, as Luca said at the beginning, beginning it, the president is the figure that can act uh, in moment of crisis, but also uh, the president uh, um, signs uh, all the laws, all the laws that have to pass and to uh, have to be approved in Italy uh, have to be uh, signed by the president of the republic. This is something very important that uh, usually is not noted, uh, but the president uh, um, has potentially uh, a lot of power in the uh, institutional uh, balance in Italy. This is something that should be reminded. And this is the reason why usually uh, they, uh, the parties uh, look for a figure that is uh, uh, um, shared in terms of uh, approval uh, among uh, different parties. So that's why they are having uh, uh, some difficulties now because uh, it is a big government uh, that uh, uh, has uh, no agreement uh, usually on uh, i mean current politics so what i believe now is that uh, there is this situation also because the government reflects a very um, uh, weak balance within the executive well, many thanks to Eleonora, Gerardo and Luca for breaking down for us uh, the presidential race in Italy, its importance and the particular voting sessions. And here our time is up for this week. I am Evicchiori and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit Euractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.